Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Nate Fisher, and this is Timeline Tapes, the world history podcast brought to you by the YouTube channel Timeline. This podcast is all about taking the history documentaries that we love and have on our channel and getting them out to as many people as we can by turning them into podcasts. Now, these were made for TV first, which is why I'm here, to help out when things might not work perfectly for audio. If you're just joining the show, first of all, welcome. Thanks for coming along. We've just finished our four-part series on the greatest Roman leaders, and this week we're going to follow Canadian documentary filmmaker Simca Jacobovici as he gathers evidence that the Talpiot tomb in East Jerusalem may be that of Jesus Christ and his family. This is a two-part episode featuring leading experts from a variety of archaeological and theological fields. You'll hear from them throughout the episode. If you'd like to find out more about them, please check out the description of the episode. The year is 1980, and a tomb has just been found in a building site outside Jerusalem. On the Sunday morning, under pressure from contractors, a team of archaeologists was called in to excavate. They had only three days before the tomb was to be sealed and cemented over. Shimon Gibson, a young surveyor at the time, was one of the first inside. It was his job to record the layout. I could see this uh, large slope with uh, tractors and, and bulldozers and trucks uh, trundling in different directions. And right in the center of this uh, slope was this gaping hole, which turned out to be the entrance to the Talpiot uh, tomb. Above the entrance was a unique facade, a carefully crafted chevron and circle that mystified the archaeologists. There's no doubt about it that uh, those symbols which are on the facades of the Talpiot tomb meant something. It's unlikely that the person or the family that came to carve out the tomb just uh, carved these things at random. They had to symbolize uh, uh, something. What they symbolize, I don't know. But it's quite rare to find that kind of ornamentation on a simple tomb. Gibson's detailed plan recorded every inch of the tomb's interior. Extending out from a large inner chamber were six deep cavities called loculi, or kohim in Hebrew. And inside these kohim, the archaeologists found ten small limestone coffins, also called ossuaries. The ossuaries were quickly transferred 
to Jerusalem's Rockefeller Museum under the direction of the Israel Department of Antiquities. The bones and remains found inside were bagged and boxed and put aside for reburial. Certain decisions were made by the Israel Antiquities Authority that they would heed to the requests of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Jerusalem and give over um, bone material which had been analyzed and, and uh, examined by anthropologists for reburial. And then they began the process of cataloging the ancient bone boxes. By 1980, over 1,000 ossuaries had been found, but only 20% of them bore the names of the dead. Here, it was discovered that six out of the 10 ossuaries had inscriptions. They are not monumental inscriptions. They're not intended to uh, be seen and viewed by everybody, and they're not there to commemorate the dead. They are there so that when family members come in and start shifting the uh, boxes around so they can put a new one in, they know which one is which and which belongs to who. The archaeological record shows that the custom of using ossuaries for burial in Jerusalem only lasted for about 100 years, ending around 70 of the Common Era when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And so the discovery of inscriptions on stone coffins like these provide archaeologists with a catalog of names specific to the time of Jesus. And on one of the ossuaries discovered in the Talpiot tomb, written in Aramaic, was an astonishing name. Yeshua Bar Yosef. This is Professor James Tabor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He will be one of the main experts accompanying Simca. Yeshua, or Jesus, son of Joseph. Yeshua bar Yosef. Now, when this was found, uh, I think the archaeologists weren't too excited about it. The public would have been very excited, but they didn't hear about it. You found a Jesus, son of Joseph, ossuary? But it wasn't really talked about. Today, the Jesus, son of Joseph, ossuary is in the hands of the Israel Antiquities Authority or IAA, as are the rest of the stone coffins taken from the Talpiot tomb. Most of them have been locked away and stored in this massive warehouse. But why? We've assembled a team of scientists, scholars, and journalists to investigate the 10 ancient bone boxes and to find out why they've been ignored. Today, it takes an expert in ancient writing like world-renowned Harvard professor Frank Moore Cross to examine the inscription. Because even though it is one of the plainest ever found on an ossuary, its letters are so informal that it's very difficult to read. This being quite informal, and this particular one quite messy. Academics describe it as a graffiti, so cursory it's almost as if it was meant to be read only by intimate family. There's an X here before the name. And then the name Yeshua, then the, the father's name, is perfectly clear, Yehoseph, the son of Joseph. I have no real doubt that this is to be read Yeshua, and then Yeshua bar Yehoseph, that is Jesus, son of Joseph. 
Jesus, son of Joseph. Professor Cross's examination of the photograph has now shown us exactly what to look for on the actual coffin. Jesus, son of Joseph. It's quite amazing, right? Amazing is not, not the word for it. Can this stone coffin be linked to Jesus of Nazareth? To answer that question, we have to examine all the archaeological evidence uncovered in this family tomb. Does it fit with Christian tradition? Does it challenge certain articles of faith? If the bones of Jesus were to be found in an ossuary in Jerusalem tomorrow, and without doubt, let's say they are definitely agreed to be the bones of Jesus, would that destroy Christian faith? It certainly would not destroy my Christian faith. I leave what happens to bodies up to God. It seems that Christians can accept the possibility that the remains of Jesus were transferred to a family tomb. Thereafter, he could have risen and appeared to his followers as the Gospels report. According to Christian faith, Jesus then ascended to heaven. In theory, the ascension could have been spiritual, leaving his body behind. In fact, those who take a strictly historical approach to the Gospels would expect to find Jesus' remains in his family tomb. When he's first buried, it's in a temporary tomb. And later, unless he somehow magically disappears and goes to heaven, which is a position of Christian faith, but if you're going to be historical and realistic, uh, he, he was put in a, would be put in a permanent place, a permanent place of burial as a good Jew, okay? Well, the tomb, you have to have a family tomb. The family tomb of Jesus. If the ossuary found in the Talpia tomb, marked Jesus, son of Joseph, did at one time contain the mortal remains of Jesus, then all the ossuaries in that tomb would have to belong to members of the Jesus family. On the other five ossuaries reported to have inscriptions, we should only expect to find names from the family tree of Jesus. Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph. But what many people don't know is that according to Christian tradition, he had two sisters, Miriam and Salome. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us he had four brothers, Simon, Judah, James, and Joseph. His adoptive father, Joseph, was descended from King David. But Joseph most likely died in Nazareth and would have been buried there, not in Jerusalem. Jesus' mother Mary, Maria in antiquity, was also of Davidic descent. But unlike Joseph, according to later Christian tradition, she died in Jerusalem. And within the same tomb as Jesus' son of Joseph, a second name was discovered. Maria, Mary, found in the same family tomb as Jesus, son of Joseph. Could this be the Virgin Mary's ossuary? Throughout history, from the first Greek writings of Mark, the earliest gospel, the Virgin Mary's name has come down to us in only one form, Maria. It is a Latinized version of the Hebrew, Miriam. After Jesus' death, Mary continued with his teachings 
and must have gathered a large following. In those times of religious transition, Roman converts also began to follow Jesus. And so as her popularity grew amongst his followers, Mary's name was Latinized. That is why the New Testament records her name as Maria. Written in Hebrew, the name Maria is very rare, but it's exactly what was found on the ossuary in the Talpia tomb. If in 1980, archeologists had considered, even for a moment, that they had discovered the ossuary of the Virgin Mary, what other family members might they have expected to find next to her? Look, Matthew, Matthew. M-T-Yud-Hey, so Matya. Matya, which is a short form, a nickname, if you wish, uh, of Matitya or Matityahu, which is where we in English get the uh, name Matthew. Matthew. The name, at first, doesn't seem to fit with the Jesus family. The New Testament is made up of the writings of four Gospels, attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, the evangelist, was a disciple of Jesus. But scholars don't believe he was a blood member of his family. However, there is reason to believe that there were many Matthews within the Jesus family. I'll tell you something very interesting. There are two genealogies of Jesus. Everybody reads the formal genealogy of Joseph, his adoptive father. It's basically all the kings of Israel and on down, well-known great historic names. But the uh, other genealogy is embedded in Luke. Uh, people don't notice it much. It's Luke chapter three. You gotta turn a few pages. It's Mary's genealogy, the mother. And in her genealogy, guess what? You have five, six, seven, eight Matthews. Mataya, Matthias. It's a Maccabean, Hashmonean name. It's a fierce name of a sort of a kingly family. It's a priestly name. You remember, Mary is related to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who's a priest. So she's got some priestly connections there, as well as Judah, which is the tribe of the Davidic Messiah. So I don't think it's odd that we would have a Matthew in, in this tomb at all. In fact, it's sort of one more congruence and fitting together. In fact, unlike Matthew, many biblical names like Isaac or Jonah would have virtually disqualified the tomb as the Jesus family tomb because they do not appear anywhere in Jesus's genealogy. Here is filmmaker Simka Yakobovici who is on location in Jerusalem to explore the engravings of the ossuaries found in the Talpiot tomb. There isn't a single name that doesn't fit the gospel story. Each name in the same tomb connects. Every single one of these names is gospel related. There isn't like any name like Daniel or something else. It just doesn't fit. On three ossuaries, four names have been uncovered. Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Matthew. And then on an ossuary found deep within the tomb, another name was discovered. This inscription says Yossa, with a hey in the end. Um, it's, a, it's a diminutive of Yosef. There is uh, no question about it. As an ossuary inscription, this would probably be quite unusual. If I'm publishing in English, I say, oh, okay, there's a, a Joseph. 
Well, it's not just a Joseph, it's Yose. Now, in Hebrew, Yosi in Israel today is quite common. Yosi, Yosi, Joseph, like Joey. But Yose, you will never hear. And you didn't hear it in the ancient world either. The Yod, the E becomes a A, Yose. Guess where we know that name? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has a brother. People don't all know that Jesus had brothers. Most scholars, you know, the Roman Catholic Church says they were cousins and other people, they were stepbrothers. But most of the historians and the biblical scholars have pretty well now admitted Jesus had brothers. They're named in the Gospels, the four brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. But the Joseph in Mark, only in Mark, our earliest Gospel, is not Joseph, it's Yose. Yose, or Josie in the English, was the brother of Jesus. But the Gospels don't tell us much more than that. He disappears after three brief citations. What happened to Yose is a mystery. But if the ossuaries from the Talpiot tomb belong to the Jesus family, then Yose has finally been found. Of all the ossuary inscriptions ever discovered, there is only one with this unique spelling of the nickname Yose. In 1980, archaeologists were cataloging ossuary names in lists of hundreds. And from this tomb, they now had Yose, a rare nickname given to the brother of Jesus. Maria, a rare Latinized version of Mary used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus' mother. Matia, a version of Matthew that, as it happens, was common in Mary's family. And Jesus, son of Joseph. All found together in a family tomb, all cleaned and cataloged, all bone material reburied, together, here in an especially consecrated grave outside Jerusalem. Why didn't anyone take notice of these names? You've got to remember that the 1970s um, and the, the early 1980s was the boom period for the excavation of tombs in and around Jerusalem. So there was suddenly enormous quantities of osheries being brought back to the, the Rockefeller Museum, the headquarters of the Israel Department of Antiquities. And these um, inscriptions were deemed to be common. You know, all the tombs around Jerusalem unfortunately with construction are slowly getting exposed and in some cases destroyed. So it's not so far-fetched that a construction crew would have uncovered the tomb of Jesus, you know? I mean, it can happen. I think we have to consider it. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're in Toronto, exploring the statistical probability of the tomb belonging to Jesus' family. While the statistical probabilities have been argued, they have never been examined by statistical experts. Until now. Andre Feuerberger is a professor of mathematics and statistics. 
From ossuaries and other sources, he's gathered every name known from the time of Jesus. By noting how often each name occurs, he can statistically evaluate the names discovered in Talpiot. One of the things that's fairly interesting about this particular tomb site is that from a lay point of view, if one looks at the specific names that occur in the cluster, and if one focuses just on the names individually, uh, one can very well come away with the impression that uh, there is nothing the least bit unusual about this particular cluster. But the correct way to analyze this is to look at all of the names in unison. According to statistics, if we were on a crowded street in ancient Jerusalem and called out the name Jesus, 4% of the men would most probably answer. If we were to call out the name Mary, 25% of the women would probably respond. They were both common names. But what Feuerberger explains is that if we were to call out for a Jesus with a father called Joseph, a mother named Mary, and a brother called Jose, the odds that such an individual would respond are quite low. From a statistical point of view, we don't actually look at the incidences of the individual names uh, where we say that each one of them is a very common name. We look at the way in which the factors combine with each other. So sure, a father by the name of Joseph is not a rare name. A son by the name of Yeshua is not a rare name. But when you combine those two together, it's rarer. So it really is a possibility that this particular tomb site is in fact the one of the New Testament family. It is a possibility that I think needs to be taken seriously. Taking the possibility seriously means that we must try to uncover more evidence. And one way to do that is to find the Talpian tomb. But more than 25 years ago, the tomb was reburied, sealed, and cemented over. A huge complex of apartments was built on top. Even if the tomb can be located, it may well be impossible to get into it, sitting under meters of concrete and foundation. Poring over architectural plans decades old and cross-referencing the IAA archaeology reports, our team believes they've discovered the underground location of the Talpiot tomb. The Talpiot site is perfectly situated halfway between ancient Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the two cities most important to Jesus and his family. It would have been an ideal location for his family tomb, considering that surviving members would have traveled from both cities to visit the burial site. Our research shows that in 1980, two tombs were discovered on the Talpiot site. The roof of the second tomb had been partially destroyed by construction, but it was sealed up again and not excavated because of time constraints and pressure from religious groups to keep it undisturbed. The archaeological reports show that this second tomb is 20 meters north of tomb number one. The apartment blueprints show that tomb number one is located under a patio and beside a bedroom wall. This, we believe, is the tomb we're looking for. Now, we know that 
One of the tombs is under the patio. We know that there's pipes coming out. That's where you come in. There's some potential. Crude IAA sketches suggest that both tombs may have had access pipes installed before building continued above them. It's common for pipes like these to be added at the request of rabbis in response to the orthodox belief that spirits need a clear passage from a tomb. We're gonna go down however many feet it is till we hit bottom. I mean, once, once we're down there, if the drawing is accurate and we've got that curve in that pipe, the camera's gonna go down the curve, we're gonna see what's there. My concern is that those pipes are bogus, that whoever built it, just built pipes there to make rabbis happy. Oh yeah, the souls can move and there's nothing there. Ideally, you stick your camera down that thing. Yes. Confirm that there is a tomb, that there's a space in between the tomb and the bedroom, if you will. I don't know how deep it goes. We cut a hole in the bedroom wall. Boom, we're in. Okay, let's do it and let's do it fast. Neighbors getting interested in what we're doing. We've obtained permission from the tenant to give us access to the Talpia department we pinpointed in the blueprints. We've only been given two days. This is it. This is it. Yeah, this is it. Bill Tarrant is our expert with probe and remote operated cameras. Even if the access hole is as small as a quarter of an inch, Bill can get a camera inside. Okay, paper's rolling. Can we take a look? So watch it with you. I'll move the camera as we go down. I think people are reluctant to think that you could come upon the Jesus family tomb. Uh, and yet, there's uh, Caiaphas, the priest who uh, had Jesus crucified. His tomb was found by a bulldozer south of Jerusalem a few years ago. In December of 1990, construction workers uncovered an ancient burial cave from the first century. Inside, there were 12 ossuaries. Two of them bore the name Caiaphas. This one, the most ornate ossuary, has the inscription, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, carved into it twice. Joseph, son of Caiaphas, was the high priest of the temple who, according to the Gospels, prosecuted Jesus. From his point of view, Jesus was a dangerous, false messiah who was leading the Jewish masses into a confrontation with Israel's rulers in Rome. The Caiaphas ostrary was found, so it's not as though no famous, you know, you say, well, it couldn't be anybody. No matter what we find, couldn't be anybody important. Why not? It seems to me there's a double standard. You said that Caiaphas is, in all probability, the high priest who prosecuted Jesus according to the Gospels. Whereas this entire cluster is dismissed, well, this is just common Jewish names. I mean, how are you so convinced that this is the Caiaphas? You find more ossuaries in that same tomb, less fancy, with the name Caiaphas, not Joseph, son of Caiaphas, but with the name Caiaphas on it. So it's definitely the tomb, as all tombs were, of a clan. This is the tomb of the Caiaphas clan. One of them right. could have been, should have been, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, the one that we know from the New Testament. And the adornment on the ossuary shows you very clearly that it is of a different standard. So 
a fancy decoration no. convinces you that this is the Caiaphas no, no, of the... No. Caiaphas is not that common name. It's not a common, as common name as Jesus, Joseph, John, or Mary. It is a rare name. It's a name that we know from both Jewish sources and from the New Testament. And uh, it is uh, good in, in dating and timing for that period. And it could be that one. The fact is that we have never found anywhere else uh, an ossuary with the name Joseph, son of Caiaphas, anywhere else. On the other hand, you have a, a whole bunch of unique things. Yossa, which you find in this tomb, and that specific variation of the name you only find in the Gospel of Mark as a brother of Jesus, only in this tomb, no other, mm. as rare as Caiaphas. In fact, rarer, because in the Caiaphas family tomb, you found several Caiaphases. Yosa appears once, period, out of all the thousands of ossuaries that have been found. Yet nobody says, in all probability, it's probably the brother of Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody does that. The fact that the probabilities in Caiaphas are very high does not say in all certainty that this is the one. There was no inscription inside saying, I have crucified Jesus. We don't know for 100%. We never know for 100% in archaeology. But the experts do seem 100% comfortable connecting some ossuaries directly to famous names in the Gospels, as long as they steer clear of the Jesus family. At the fifth station on the Via Dolorosa, the path Jesus walked carrying his cross, we find a dedication to Simon of Cyrene. It is here that there was a moment both historic and intimate between Jesus and a man called Simon. According to the Gospels, Jesus stumbled en route to the crucifixion, and Simon, who was visiting Jerusalem from Cyrene, helped him carry his burden. Simon and his son Alexander became early followers of Jesus. Experts agree that their ossuary has been found. Strangely, it sits ignored under an archival shelf in the back of a university building. Well, we have a, a nice ossuary that was found in 1941. One of the inscriptions clearly says, uh, Alexander, son of Simon, Alexandros Simonos. That one that's clearly incised is right here, Shimon. You can see it very clearly. Right, Shimon. And apparently the chalk, which is on the other side and is essentially faded, does have the two names, Alexander at the top, Simon below, which would indicate that both of these individuals were put in this ossuary. On the lid of this ossuary, the place name Cyrene in modern Libya is inscribed. Simon of Cyrene is mentioned in the New Testament helping Jesus with his carry his cross. If scholars have generally agreed this is his bone box, this is it, then this is one of the most important artifacts in Christendom. Why is it sitting under somebody's table? Part of it is that it was found many years ago, in 1941. That was long before there were even popular magazines on biblical archaeology for the layman. So it escaped the popular attention. You have to have a publicist. You have to have somebody that says, boy, this is something. Let's put this out, right? Yeah, so uh, it ends up sitting in a storeroom. It ends up sitting in a storeroom. On the ossuary of Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped carry Jesus' cross, we found the same symbol that is carved over the entrance to the Telpiot tomb, the tomb that housed the ossuary inscribed, Jesus, son of Joseph. 
Is it possible that the symbol marking the Talpia tomb became the symbol of the Jesus movement? It is if the tomb belongs to Jesus and his family. On a fifth ossuary, they uncovered another inscription. The inscription has two parts. The second part reads Mara, while the first part is a diminutive of Mariamne. And although no one had ever seen this name on an ossuary, it was translated as just another version of Mary. Mary, also known as Mara. But would it make sense to find in the Jesus family tomb two ossuaries with the name Mary? First, Maria, the name used in the Gospels to refer to the Virgin Mother. And the second, a unique spelling of both Mary and the name Mara. It might make sense if the second Mary, this Mariamne, was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene comes down to us in the New Testament as not just a name, but a name and title. According to scholars, she is Mary from Magdala, Mary Magdalene. Magdala was an important trade center close to the Sea of Galilee. The people from Magdala would have spoken Greek as well as Aramaic. Christian traditions suggest that Mary Magdalene and her brother Philip were preachers to the Greek-speaking Jews. And it's quite likely that Mary Magdalene's family and followers would have written her name in Greek. The Mariamne ossuary is the only one found in the Talpia tomb with a Greek inscription. Let's say in this very tomb of Talpia, the second Mary, right was clearly identifiable as Mary Magdalene, let's say. Right. What would you be your reaction then along in, inside this cluster? It would be fascinating and certainly draw much more attention and raise many more questions, but it isn't. We don't have Mary of Magdalene in that tomb. If one of the ossuaries had said Mary Magdalene, I would say, wow and I would be a lot more impressed. If it will be written, Maria, Magd Maria coming from Migdal, or Maria Magdalena, I would say, very interesting. If the Mariamne inscription could be connected to Mary Magdalene, it would be more than interesting. It would be statistically compelling, because we could create a combined probability equation for the Talpiot cluster that includes Mariamne. What happens when you do that is that the individual probability factors, even though they're not terribly small in any one particular case, when you multiply them all together, it actually starts to build up a picture that the overall thing that you've seen is actually a very rare event. Because Feuerberger takes a conservative approach, he eliminates Matia altogether since he is not a known member of Jesus' immediate family. Feuerberger also divides the probability outcome by four, so as to compensate for any unintended biases in the historical data. And he further divides the number by 1,000, representing all first-century Jerusalem tombs. By the end, his model concludes that there is only one chance in 600 that the Talpiot tomb is not the Jesus family tomb if Mariamne can be linked to Mary Magdalene.
but can she? One of the most famous tales associated with Mary Magdalene is in the Gospel of John, where Jesus stops the stoning of a woman punished for adultery. But there is no indication in the text that the unnamed woman is Magdalene. It's a later Christian tradition that has linked the adulteress to Magdalene, just as it has linked her to the tale in Luke of another unnamed woman specifically labeled a sinner who anoints the feet of Jesus, drying them with her hair. Today, scholars believe that Mary Magdalene and the two unnamed women in Luke and John are all different women. The tradition of linking Mary Magdalene to these so-called sinners can be traced back to a turnaround in the church of later centuries, when women were excluded from being consecrated as religious leaders. Previous to that time, women were ordained. And in many early Christian writings, Mary Magdalene is highly respected as a missionary. I think that Mary Magdalene was an extremely important person in the Jesus movement. So important that I think, and this is my opinion, I know I'm not representing anybody else in this, but I think that she actually is the real founder of Christianity. Mary of Magdala was a major apostle on a par with Peter at the time of Jesus. But later after the New Testament, we say she's a prostitute. So the opposition to Mary of Magdala inside the New Testament and after the New Testament is the surest proof for me that she was very, very important. The strong leadership displayed by Magdalene would have been regarded as suspect by an evolving male-dominated church. So from the second century, when church fathers began suppressing dozens of early Christian writings, the church rejected two texts that held Mary Magdalene in highest regard, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and a text describing her brother's ministry, the Acts of Philip. For centuries, only fragments of these texts remained, and some sections had been considered lost forever. In 1974, in an ancient monastery on Mount Athos in Greece, a Harvard University professor, Francois Beauvon, uncovered a 700-year-old manuscript. It was the most complete copy ever found of the fourth century text, the Acts of Philip. In it, Beauvon claims to have discovered an early description of Mary Magdalene, unmarked by later Christian tradition. In the Acts of Philip, she is completely there is no mention of her previous life. She is seen positively as a Christian missionary. So she is completely at the same level as male missionaries. She preaches, she teaches, she baptizes, she carries even the title apostle. If in the early Christian movement Mary Magdalene was an apostle, then the unique alias Mara on Mariamne's ossuary could be pointing to something extraordinary. In Aramaic, Mara means master. Mara, the master. So uh, it's a sign of respect for a rabbi, for a teacher, related to the Mara, the Lord, the master. It is clear in the Acts of Philip that Mary Magdalene is respected as a preacher, baptizer, and apostle, strong and faithful 
and close to Jesus. It would make sense then for her followers to refer to her as Mara, Master. But what about the spelling of the first name in the inscription, the unique Mariamne, never found before or since on any other ossuary? In the Acts of Philip, Mary Magdalene's name is spelled M-A-R-I-A-M-N-E, Mariamne. Mariamne is the same woman as Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene in the Synoptic Gospels and in some non-canonical texts like the Gospel of Mary, Pistis Sophia, etc. The Acts of Philip seem to explain all the mysteries behind this inscription. But if this is really the ossuary belonging to Mary Magdalene, then there's one more thing that needs to be investigated. The common held belief, based on medieval tradition, is that after the death of Jesus, the disciples were expelled from Judea and scattered to many lands, traveling and spreading the word of God. After some time, Mary Magdalene ended up in France, where she spent the last of her days. Following this later Christian tradition, it would be impossible to discover Mary Magdalene's coffin in Telpiot, Jerusalem. However, in the Acts of Philip, written in the fourth century, the oldest known account of Mary Magdalene's travels, she does not die in France. According to the Acts of Philip, uh, at the end of the story, Mariamne is said, supposed to go home to Israel, to the Jordan Valley, and the author has an allusion that where she would die and be buried. The Acts of Philip clearly tell us that Mary Magdalene, Jesus' most trusted apostle, dies here in Jerusalem. Would it really be that implausible to find her buried beside Jesus in the tomb of the Jesus family? The statistical probabilities are compelling. The cluster of names in the Talpia tomb, extraordinary. The connections to the Gospels, too strong to dismiss. Armed with this new knowledge, our team may now be able to uncover new clues inside the Talpia tomb if we can just get inside. This is deep. This is, is really deep. deep. 20 feet. You're already 20 feet down? You know, that's great. Down. Look, 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 look. Oh. That's the bottom, I think. We're in. Oh, my God. There it is. That's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the tomb. Yes. Oh, my goodness. There's good news and there's bad news here. There's an ossuary there. What does that mean? Well, it means we're in the wrong tomb. Our tomb is empty. So, what are we going to do? Although we found ourselves in the wrong tomb, perhaps these finely crafted ossuaries, so close to the Talpiot tomb, are somehow connected to Jesus or his followers. Thanks for listening to part one of The Lost Tomb of Jesus on Timeline Tapes. In our next episode, we'll be continuing with Simca's journey to uncover the tomb. If you can't wait until then, and need some more history content, then you can always visit our YouTube channel, where we've got countless free world history documentaries for you to watch. 
If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you like this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write a short review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together.